I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hola, 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 hola. Hello, people. Don't interrupt me, por favor. Aquí comenzamos en este lugar. Kingston, Nueva York, de este país que todo el mundo conoce como Estados Unidos, excepto la gente de Estados Unidos que lo llama América. Maybe they call them America because huge, maybe because they try to remove the people who speak Spanish in the South. Who knows? But the reality is a huge country. Here we are in Kingston, New York, but Lisa Button today is far away, three hours away in the same country, in Tucson, Arizona. ¿Cómo estás, Lisa? Hola, estoy muy bien. Aquí estoy... Um... Bueno, gozando de, de una temperatura ideal y voy a hacer una excursión en el desierto después del programa. Muy bien, todo bien. Una excursión en el desierto, ten muchísimo cuidado, ¿eh? que haya, haya animales peligrosísimos como el aracrán, que es malísimo, que el aracrán te dice que no te va a picar, que no te va a picar y al final te pica, ¿eh? Y si hay una sandstorm y te sand en tus ojos... Uh, this is Nick Liber, by the way. Hi, Nick. Here, How are you doing in I'm, Brooklyn, New York, I'm right? I'm here in Brooklyn where there are, there are no sandstorms, but I'm, I'm worried for Lisa, so I hope she's got you know, a handkerchief to put over her face if one blows up in the desert. Nick Leiber está enviado especial a Brooklyn para que esté atento desde la ventana mirando cuando aparecen los tribas, sí. las, las lubinas que vienen por el Atlántico, para salir inmediatamente en una barca a atraparlas con una caña. ¿no? Are, you, oh, are they coming oh, yet? Uh, dentro de un par de meses, yo creo que en, en, bueno, menos de un par de meses, en un mes creo que empiezan a, a llegar los, las lubinas. Y, pero esas son lubinas que no son normales, esas lubinas son, tienen un, un sabor buenísimo. That's what I'm also going to be on the lookout yeah. for boats. You know, if I happen to see a boat on the Hudson River or the East River, maybe Bernardo de Galvez is taking, is piloting one of these boats up the river or down the river. Uh, But I can't. I don't see any Bernardo de Galvez out the window right now. Nor do I is see he any. Well, time have, traveler? well, the funny thing, the funny thing is the Rio Hudson. I mean, the uh, Hudson River. Uh, for 80 years before it was named in the maps as, as the Hudson River was called the San Antonio River. So you see maps 80 years before, you know, uh, the Half Moon was navigating the the Hudson, trying to find a pass to the to the Pacific. 80 years before. Uh, and the, the oldest map of the of this area, who was done by a guy called Gomez, who almost 500 years ago was uh, shaping with Magellan, trying to go around the world. Uh, you will find that that river uh, was called the, the River San Antonio, El Rio San Antonio. And that's one of the little proofs that uh, people who were speaking Spanish were here, you know, uh, before this country was uh, what it is today. Uh, during the uh, Revolutionary War and, of course, today, and they belong here as many other people. We're going to talk about history today with uh, an amazing guy, an amazing professor who's in Wisconsin, and he wrote a lot of books about uh, Spain, uh, pretty much about the Civil War, and about that guy called Franco, who was, uh, you know, uh, during four years uh, doing, you know, whatever he wanted in the country because he was the only ruler, and he got the, the, the golden rule, you know, the, uh, the whoever got the gold 
is the one who rules. And, and, this, and this is someone who's written more than two dozen books about Spain, about the history of Spain, um, and recently won a big award, someone uh, with the name of someone who you know very well, Guillermo, even though you're not a time traveler. Well, I guess in a way you are a time traveler. Um, eh, vamos a hablar enseguida con, con Stanley G. Uh, Payne, que acaba de ganar el galardón Bernardo de Galvez. Galardón Bernardo de Galvez, que era el gobernador de Luisiana en la época en que Washington luchaba contra los ingleses y que, desde mi punto de vista como historiador pequeñito, es el señor que le salvó el trasero a George Washington, porque efectivamente dos tercios, two thirds of the actual territory of the United States, when Bernardo de Galvez was the governor of Luisiana, were called New Spain, and people who were speaking Spanish were helping, you know, the patriots to actually beat the English. And they did it because of all that help. Anyways, that's the name of the award. The award is called Bernardo de Galvez because Bernardo de Galvez is a guy who's American, is a guy who's Spanish, is a guy who, uh, you know, is between the two countries. And uh, the award for this uh, historian based in Wisconsin is because he has projected light on the knowledge of the history of Spain in the United States, what is actually more than welcome. Vamos a presentar al invitado de Don't Interrupt Me, por favor, de hoy. Se llama Stanley George Payne. Es un historiador como la copa de un pino. Ha escrito muchos libros sobre la España moderna, entendiendo por la España moderna la España de la Guerra Civil, la España de Franco y la España del franquismo. Y con él tenemos muchas preguntas pendientes porque la España que supuestamente en la transición había cerrado las heridas de repente se mira a sí misma y se pregunta si realmente están cerradas o si realmente todavía hay que dar algunos pasos para conseguir cerrarlas del todo eh, por eso vamos a saludarle hoy en inglés que es su idioma aunque España es su pasión a Stanley Payne que ha tenido a la deferencia de share this radio time with us with Lisa, with Nick and with me in Kingston uh, on the radio and today Mr. Payne, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we can wait to ask you a lot of questions. But the first thing uh, should be say congratulations. Uh, you got an award that is uh, phenomenal. Uh, Bernardo de Galvez, el galardón que da la Fundación Consejo España Estados Unidos, and they gave you that award because they said you uh, help us. You put some light over the table on the recent history of Spain to the people who live in America, and I think that's. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to do, anything that is related to education and know each other better uh, in terms to get better relations. But my first question is, why do you got interested, a guy from Texas got so interested in Spain? Well, I suppose in part because I was a, a person from Texas, uh, though there was a very serendipitous quality to the whole thing. In 1943, when I was a child in elementary school in Texas, the Texas State Board of Education decreed that since we were in the midst of World War II, Texas school children by the time of the fifth grade on should have a little bit of language instruction in some language they didn't specify. And they simply added that to the homeroom teachers load. And most of them in North Texas, where I was living in Denton, uh, simply added a couple of hours of instruction in Spanish as best they could every week. So I got that. I didn't really learn much Spanish, but I got the idea. And then later on in the university studied it uh, further and uh, so developed some background. But even so, 
I had no intention of specializing in it. This only came later on when I entered graduate school and had to find an area in which to do research. And I was simply fortunate that uh, just as I was entering grad school, I happened to read a couple of books that interested me quite a bit in Spain. The concern in classes as a university undergraduate in the United States was always more in Spanish America and Latin America than, than in Spain. But I read a couple of books, particularly by the British critic V.S. Pritchett, a book called The Spanish Temper, that made me think this could be quite interesting. And it turned out that was exactly the case. When did you first go to Spain, Stanley? I went to Spain originally to do doctoral research on a Social Science Research Council doctoral grant in 1958, that is just a few months more than 60 years ago. So Franco is in the background of uh, your books. Uh, either is the biography of Franco, or it is the Spain of Franco, or it is the Spain after Franco. And you know that uh, now we have a date uh, in Spain, June 10th, when supposedly the remains, well, supposedly the remains are going to be, uh, of Franco are going to be removed from uh, the Valley of the Death, El Valle de los Caídos, that monument that, uh, you know, uh, should be, many people think, uh, a monument, a memorial of the Civil War and not a memorial of only one side of the Civil War. And I would like to uh, to have your take on that. Uh, how much, we're talking about the Franco remains, but how much remain of Franco now that you look at Spain from here uh, well, is, is still there? If you listen to the propaganda of the Spanish left, a great deal remains of Franco because they talk about Franco all the time. Uh, the question is how much of this is real and how much of this is an artificial political product. What we find in the 21st century that is that the argument from history, from uh, alterity from the victims, is uh, very important to left-wing politics all over the Western world. Notice the controversy in the United States very recently about Confederate monuments. No one was concerned about that uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And in Spain, the past was largely resolved during the democratic transition in which they decided that they would not try to play politics of vengeance against anyone, uh, but treat everyone the same and leave history to the historians. But with the new ideology of the 21st century left, in which history is a main element of political controversy, all of this was revived uh, from 2000, and particularly from 2004 on. So now it is a major factor in political discourse, at least for the left. As far as uh, Franco is, remains are concerned, it, you know, it doesn't really make very much difference where Franco is buried. It was not his idea to bury him in the, in the Valley of the Fallen, and it might have been a better notion not to have done so. In fact, his wife was hoping that he would be buried in the family plot in the former residence, which is now a national historical site at El Pardo. But uh, it was the king and the government in 1975 that decided to bury the Valley of the Fallen, and they may not have been doing Spain a favor by doing so. On the other hand, we have a controversial situation at the present moment because the government has decreed that it can carry out a decree to exhume the remains and bury them somewhere else. 
it isn't clear that they have the legal power to do so. In fact, the Spanish courts have ruled they do not until there's been a full uh, legal consideration of this problem. Uh, you can't just dig someone up because you want to dig someone up. So there is a real legal and constitutional controversy about this at the present time. Thinking about listeners who don't know about the Valle de los Caídos and they don't know about this monument to, to Spain's dictator, Francisco Franco, how do you explain what people might be just sort of glancing at in the United States in the headlines about this big move? The uh, way this is presented in reports abroad usually is, is very misleading. Uh, the Valley of the Fallen was never intended as a personal monument to Franco. It was intended as a monument to the fallen civil war on both sides, and indeed as a monument of reconciliation. But of course, by burying Franco there, the government made it a monument to Franco rather than to reconciliation. So the idea of taking Franco out is not necessarily a bad idea in and of itself, since he had never left instructions that he was to be buried there anyway. The problem is that it can't be done as an act of political partisanship. Two wrongs don't make a right. That's the old Spanish problem. Yo entiendo, entiendo. Legally and constitutionally, uh, and there has to be a, uh, some effort to, to resolve the problem equitably on all sides. Entiendo, señor Payne, que eh, la política eh, se mezcla en este, en este asunto y entiendo que es muy difícil eh, apartarse de la política y qué es lo que hay que intentar, pero no, ¿no le parece a usted que fuera de la política hay un problema humano no resuelto y es tan sencillo como que en los dos bandos hubo víctimas, por supuesto, en los dos bandos hubo atrocidades, por supuesto, pero las víctimas de un bando pudieron enterrar a sus muertos y hoy actualmente hay muchas víctimas del otro bando que siguen en las cunetas y hay mucha gente, ha habido un artículo en The New Yorker ha recientemente publicado en el que salen eh, algunas de esas personas, nietas de los, de los fallecidos entonces, de los asesinados entonces, de los muertos en la guerra, como los queramos llamar, eh, que lo único que reclaman es, por favor, recuperar el cuerpo de su abuela, de su abuelo, no, para es poderlo enterrar. Eso es otra cuestión. Uh, la cuestión de exhumar, desenterrar y recuperar los cadáveres de los muertos que no han sido debidamente enterrados, con todo respeto. Esto es un procedimiento totalmente digno, algo que, que debe hacerse. Eso es otra cuestión. Y yo creo que nadie está en contra de eso, porque lo que es procedente es importante hacerlo. Eso es otra cuestión. Y yo creo que todo el mundo está a favor de eso. Lo, lo que no, no está bien es la idea de que había solamente víctimas del lado de las izquierdas. Ah, eso no es cierto, porque los republicanos fusilaron a 55.000 personas. La mayor parte de esos sí de, a, han sido adecuadamente enterrados y respetados. No todos pero la, la mayor parte, así que hay un, hay un cierto desequilibrio en esto. Ciertamente, como yo, yo he dicho, realmente yo lo creo que, que, que es importante y es un deber nacional hacerlo, pero hay que separar las, las, los dos lados de la cuestión. Algunos uh, miles de personas que está, cuyos uh, restos están en esta situación y, y es importante hacerlo, pues yo también tengo parientes eh, en Cuba 
que un, un vistío le trasladaron sin permiso de su familia um, a un cementerio para los revolucionarios. Y, y eso fue algo muy difícil para, para los parientes que aún quedan vivos porque no estaban de acuerdo con el gobierno de Castro. Entonces, um, yo creo que en España no es el único sitio donde esto sucede, que los restos humanos se usan para, no sé, como un simbolismo político, ¿verdad? Oh, sí, claro. Eso ha pasado en, en, en varios países. En Europa fue una cuestión de las guerras civiles revolucionarias que tuvieron lugar en varios países durante la primera mitad del siglo XX y con muchas ejecuciones. Y lo que ha pasado es que realmente no han tratado de respetar o recuperar los cadáveres en, en muchos casos en, en Rusia. Han, han, han tratado de hacerlo algo más en Grecia. Probablemente el único país en que todo ha, ha sido hecho de, de un modo debido, con todo respeto, es Finlandia. Después de la, de, de la breve guerra civil finlandesa en el año 1918. Pero no, esto, esto pasa en todas partes y, y, y realmente eh, es uh, un procedimiento muy, muy falso de, 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 de tratar de apropiarse de estos restos y colocarlos donde, donde se quiera. Tiene que ser hecho con todo respeto y según las leyes. Y lo que pasa es que con la exhumación de Franco. Eh, realmente eh, están violando la ley y todo eso tiene que ver con, con, con el respeto y según las normas de la legislación y la constitución pero es un problema en muchas partes no es un caso únicamente español uh, sino ocurre en varios países Fascism become a term as a an all-purpose majority for anything one doesn't like Fascism proper was a radicalism of Europe between the two world wars, which is not going to be repeated. Uh, the, the new radicalism of the 21st century is going to be somewhat different. Anytime anyone tries to simply dig up and repeat European fascism, that person is going to put himself in such an extreme situation that very soon he won't have any followers at all if he ever had it in the first place. So categorically, Neo-Nazis and neo-fascists are not a problem. What one has to pay attention to are the new kinds of destructive radicalism and extremism of the 21st century, but it's not going to be simply a repeat of the past. You have to look at every historical era in terms of the pressures and problems of that particular era. So what do you think Steve Bannon, a person who was here, you know, consulting ayudando, uh, instigando en una dirección al que hoy es presidente de la Casa Blanca. ¿Qué está haciendo Steve Bannon en un país como España? ¿O ¿Qué está haciendo Steve Bannon en...? Yo, yo, yo no sabía que, que estuviera en España. Eso, eso es, para mí es una noticia. Bueno, está tratando, supongo, si es así, está tratando de buscar entonces uh, conexiones, algún apoyo uh, de parte de, de gente de, de su propio punto de vista en España, pero... Yo creo que no tendrá mucho éxito, porque la extrema derecha en España es muy, muy débil. Muy, muy débil, no existe. Pero usted ha visto, ha visto el, nuevo, el nuevo partido que ha surgido, ¿no? Vox, eh, tiene mucha Vox, gente preocupada. No, 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 no pero Vox no, Vox no es un partido neofascista. Vox es un, par, par, uh, es un partido de la derecha constitucional. Uh, yo no veo que, que Vox ha, ha propuesto la violación de la Constitución o un cambio del régimen político. 
es realmente un partido de derechas, porque antes de Vox no había en España un partido de derechas. Eh, es el único que hay. Y tal vez pues, podría como máximo movilizar un 10% del voto. Uh, y, pero si fuera así, eso sería una novedad en el panorama político español, porque antes el, toda la derecha ha sido muy, muy débil en España. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How, how, do you, how do you see the transition? You said that uh, the king of Spain is the one who decided that Franco should be buried in the, in the Valley of the Fallen. How do you think the transition has been? I mean, really, I mean, the... the I mean, how much of the Franco Spain is still there? But that's that's a question that is now in the country. It's like maybe we didn't change as much as we were told. Maybe there wasn't such a big transition here. I mean, how do you see that? Well, as I said, the doctrine and tactic now the leftists try to try to invoke history as a kind of political weapon to change present circumstances because the the usual arguments and doctrines of the 20th century left have fallen by the wayside and can't be very easily revived. Uh, there has developed a new tendency from about the beginning of this century to criticize the democratic transition of 1976. Any political process has its flaws, and there are aspects about it that can be criticized or improved upon. But the democratic transition of 1976 in Spain was hailed around the world as a remarkable kind of civic achievement because it was the first time literally in the history of the world that a long-standing authoritarian regime uh, was transformed from the inside out without direct political violence, a major insurrection or a big war or something of that nature. This was a unique uh, political achievement, and it also achieved the first stable and constitutional democracy uh, that worked and endured in the entire history of Spain. Now, you can't tell me this was not a major achievement. There's been criticism of this now, saying that basically the argument is the left did not take over. Why on earth should the left take over? The idea of a democracy is to provide democratic elections for all the political forces that respect the Constitution and the democracy. It is correct that there was no leftist government for six or seven years, and then the Socialist Party, which has got to be considered a leftist party, under Felipe González, won an absolute majority and ran the government for the next 13 years. So if there's a quarrel, it should be the quarrel is with the Spanish Socialist Party and the government of Felipe González, because it was in power for a very long time and consolidated and developed the transition. They should be very clear what it is they want to Uh, criticized then concerning the politics and policy of the Gonzalez government and its very long socialist administration and not pretend that the democratization was not a democratization. This is a, a very false and destructive kind of charge in which the Spanish left returns to its vomit in the 21st century uh, in the way that it did 
during the 1930s. You brought up uh, socialism, talking about the Socialist Party in Spain. You know, for a lot of Americans, they don't really know what that term has has a really deep association with communism. But we have candidates coming up. Uh, Bernie Sanders is one, you know, some very popular candidates who are now saying, you know, they are socialist. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different flavors of socialism in different countries. Okay, let's break this down. First, let me talk about uh, socialism in Spain that I referred to. And then we'll talk about this uh, uh, new kind of language which has emerged in the last few years in the United States. In, in Spain, after the death of Franco, the Spanish Socialist Party, which was a classic late 19th century socialist party, Marxist, coming out of the, the old Second International, uh, still invoked Marxism as the basis of its doctrine and found that it simply could not mobilize the majority of public opinion at that time. And so Felipe González, the new leader who was a young politician, uh, made a major about-face and uh, really transformed the Spanish uh, Socialist Party into a social democratic party, much more like North European social democratic party uh, politics, not hardline socialism. And this transformation was very successful and enabled the Spanish Socialists to, to win a majority and to govern the country for the next 13 years and to consolidate the new democratic political system. Uh, now, when, when you hear, have people like uh, Bernie Sanders and others in the Democratic Party uh, talk about socialism, this can be very confusing to people. Uh, basically, I think, I can't be sure because they use language often themselves so poorly, they're really talking about a kind of left-wing social democracy, which means um, much more government control of the economic system, yes, but under a democratic political system, I believe, I, I don't see that they're, they're really challenging that, and so this would be what would be called uh, North European social democracy and not socialism. There was a revolutionary socialism in Europe in the early 20th century. You found that in Germany, for example, in 1919, uh, and then in Spain, even though most European socialist parties themselves were moving toward socialism during that period. And I don't think this kind of revolutionary socialism, even though it was not communist per se, was not Leninist, uh, is what uh, the Democrats have in mind. But they sling language around in a very vague and confusing way. And I think they would serve their own cause better if they're really quite precise about what they're talking about and put it in a very clear context with regard to political terminology and possibly with regard to, to other kinds of political cases. Uh, what one does find, though, in the United States is that Americans tend to proceed in a kind of terminological, conceptual, and sometimes even political vacuum in which they, they ignore other parts of the world and other kinds of political experiences, and therefore you, you get a kind of American terminology that really doesn't have any comparison with the way things are, are done or talked about in other countries, uh, e even with uh, terms of colors. In American politics, red is the color of the Republicans now, the way people use it. Well, of course, in Europe, red is the color of the revolutionary left or of the left in general. So everything in the United States is different, but it is somewhat confusing sometimes and confusing even to Americans. 
as you talk about the U.S. understanding um, these different terms, when when you're talking with your friends and trying to explain what's going on in Spain right now and and compare it to the past, what is coming up? Now, I'm I'm talking perhaps more of your your lay friends, not your your fellow academics. But people are saying, well, what's going on in Spain right now, Stanley? You've written two dozen books, over two dozen books about Spain. What what do you sort of tell your fellow Americans about what they should understand about what's happening in Spain today? Well, the main political issue in Spain, aside from this business about <laughs> exhuming Franco, which has been uh, really developed as kind of red herring by a weak minority government to show that it's capable of doing something. The real political problem really has to do with, with the political structure of the country in terms of the powers of the autonomous regions and, of course, the, the Catalan independence movement. This is, is the number one problem. And this is what has gotten people's attention about Spain. They want to know about uh, Catalonia. They want to know if Catalonia is an oppressed region Find than that, in fact, uh, Catalan uh, independentist propaganda has really had some effect on the international level. In fact, the, the Spanish system uh, is the freest, most autonomous system of any country in Europe, uh, equaled or surpassed only by that of Switzerland. Uh, so there are really extraordinary powers of extensive self-government in the autonomous regions. However, the Constitution of Spain declares Spain to be a united country and not admitting of any kind of uh, constitutional secession, so that the idea that uh, the Catalans can simply declare uh, an independence referendum and walk out if they want is not permitted under the Spanish Constitution. Very few countries really provide for the right for self-destruction politically. So this is not a uniqueness of Spain, but this is the thing I think that has caused uh, the most confusion. Uh, the, the Catalan nationalist propaganda said that they're, they're, they're suffering under renewed Francoism. No, the, Spain has uh, the freest, most autonomous political structure we found just about anywhere, with, with very few comparisons. Uh, and this has created a lot of confusion. España es Europa, ¿no? eh, yo crecí en una España que era en blanco y negro y estamos en una España a todo color, con sus problemas, pero a todo color en comparación con los años 60, eh, y una España que es parte de Europa, de una Europa que ahora mismo mira hacia las islas británicas diciendo que eso está pasando, chicos. Eh, ¿Cómo ve usted esa, ese, ese mapa llamado Unión Europea? Bueno, en España la actitud es totalmente positiva. En España eh, probablemente hay, hay menos resistencia en contra de lo que algunos llaman las imposiciones de la Unión Europea en cualquier otro país europeo grande. Eh, realmente eh, todo el mundo está a favor. Y hay que entender que, por ejemplo, durante los primeros casi 20 años de la participación de España en la Unión Europea, realmente esto ha beneficiado mucho a España. Uh, porque recibía los, los, los fondos de counterpart de, de la Unión Europea que ayudaron mucho con uh, el desarrollo de la infraestructura en España y varias cosas. Uh, en, cambio, en cambio, la introducción de, de, 
del euro, uh, del dinero unificado en, en, en Europa, a largo plazo no ha beneficiado a España. Yo siempre tenía la pregunta de que, bueno, eso está bien, tener un, un, un dinero único, uh, moneda única, pero luego, uh, en mi experiencia de, de bastantes años en España, cada vez que ha surgido algunas dificultades económicas, entonces el modo de, de, de salir de eso y resolver los problemas ha sido la desvalorización. Uh, entonces, y hacer más barato el dinero, y entonces fomentar la, la exportación y la recuperación de la economía, y el país ha perdido la autonomía en esto. Y eso es lo que ha pasado, que ha sido muy difícil para España, no es con esta recesión de los últimos años, porque ha tenido que do, uh, doblegarse a los dictados del uh, Banco Europeo, y está en una situación muy rígida, en que realmente no, no, no puede hacer cambios. Un banco europeo que al final es un banco alemán, ¿no? O un banco francés. Sí, 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 casi, casi más un banco alemán. Y, y por eso yo creo que actualmente hay una, una cierta tensión. Sin embargo, sin embargo, la verdad es que los españoles no lo ven exactamente en estos términos. Es decir, que, que saben que, que están sufriendo, pero sin embargo la actitud general de parte de, de todos los actores políticos es muy positiva con la Unión Europea. Y hay menos crítica probablemente en España que en otros países. España no es, no es Italia, no es Grecia ha sido con más respeto, todavía más a favor de la Unión Europea. No hay país más europeísta actualmente que España. Ninguno, ninguno. Qué curioso, quizás porque nos hemos eh, integrado a Europa con más ganas que nadie, ¿no? Sí, eh, bueno, en, uh, en la última ronda de Portugal y Grecia, año 85, pero eh, es que como consecuencia del pasado de España... Un, un, un cierto aislamiento, nunca completo, un, un, un semi-aislamiento bajo Franco. Entonces hay, hay, había un interés enorme en integrarse en la Unión Europea. Entonces, y como digo, durante los primeros años los beneficios para España eran muy grandes. Y por eso, y también porque el nacionalismo español, en, en, en cuanto a un nacionalismo de España, no es un factor muy fuerte en la vida política española, y, y por eso no hay la, la clase de tensión que existe en Gran Bretaña, pero que también existe en otros países, hace un país este, un acceso más reciente como Polonia o Hungría, uh, no existe este nacionalismo uh, de pan español, digamos, uh, en el país. Entonces, uh, las tensiones, las críticas, realmente son menores en España, mucho menos, mucho, mucho menos graves en España que, por ejemplo, en Italia. Hablamos de, de España, de un memorial muy conocido, el Valle de los Caídos. ¿Qué about the memorials in the south of the, this beautiful country, United States? What's happening in the south with the memorials, uh, Mr. Payne? Well, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to this. I don't know that I'm, I'm really very well informed. Obviously, what has happened is certain Confederate statues have come down. Now, this was already done in Spain a long time ago. Various of the uh, Statues in Spain, for example, there was people on, on the national side in the in the uh, Civil War had been taken down. Although what the mistake made in Spain was to uh, erect new statues of the sectarians and revolutionaries on the other side, uh, and, and that was not really a gesture of democratic reconciliation because 
the people who uh, were represented the new statues were just as violent and just as authoritarian as the people whose statues had been taken down. So you have a real problem of equanimity in these issues in Spain. That's very hard. It's a lot of, uh, in Spain, you always get uh, some tendency for, quítate tú para ponerme yo. El gran combo de Puerto Rico. But listen, how, how long it takes to heal uh, a civil war? We're talking of Spain, 1936, 39, okay. Uh, a long time ago, but okay, still here. But we're talking of the United States in the 1800s, and are, are, are we still healing here? Uh, I, I believe so. Uh, but uh, civil wars, if they're major civil wars and not just some little thing, are going to leave very deep scars, uh, and it takes a real act of will uh, on the part of everybody uh, to completely heal these things. In Spain, the democratic transition and the democratization of the country with uh, complete freedom for historical research and publications of all kinds after 1975 uh, really accomplished a great deal. And uh, Spaniards thought between 1975 and 2000 that the Civil War had finally been resolved. And now we find a lot of new charges and accusations coming up in the 21st century uh, from the left, even though it had been running the government for most of the time since the death of Franco, that this was not the case. Uh, this is pretty hard to evaluate, and sometimes, frankly, is not done in, in very good faith. So that uh, there is, is a healing when there is a desire for healing and not when you're using the civil war for your own political purposes, not all over again. At the same time, uh, Stanley, this, this is Nick again. I started to, to look at a new documentary film that's out called The Silence of Others. And in one of the first scenes, someone is talking, is walking through Madrid and he, he's pointing out where someone who he says tortured him a number of times lives, and he ha he's, he's able to, to see, to, to recognize this, and, and walks by and points out this, this guy's apartment. And, you know, healing seems difficult to do when someone who tortured you, you know, lives, lives up the street. I, I think that's absolutely correct. On the other hand, you have to face the question, how are you going to resolve this, these things? In the ex-communist countries, it was generally decided that uh, about all they could do would, would, would be to forgive and forget uh, and move on with national lives and with their own lives. Uh, and that was what the Spanish had decided in 1975. Historical justice is a very difficult thing to accomplish because most of the historical actors are dead by the time you get around to it. Uh, and so to try to carry out a series of exemplary punishments is much more easily conceived of than actually done in practice. And that's why the general procedure in the late 20th century with the ending of the major dictatorships in various parts of Europe was to proceed along the same lines as the Spanish had done in 1975 with the forgive and forget, except for extensive historical studies, 
and Stanley Payne. That seems to be the most effective formula. Tenemos que darle las gracias por haber estado con nosotros en Don't Interrupt Me, por favor. Eh, la investigación, la historia, es la única manera de que todos aprendamos a, a vivir con lo que ha ocurrido y a intentar hacer un futuro mejor. Enhorabuena por su premio otra vez, Bernardo de Galvez, galardón de la Fundación Consejo de España-Estados Unidos. Pedazo de premio merecido. Muchas gracias, señor Payne. De nada, ha sido un placer. Gracias. Thanks, Stanley. Thanks very much. You bet. Nos vamos, nos vamos todos. Adiós, Lisa Patton. Don't adiós. interrupt me, por favor. Don't interrupt me, por favor, Nick Leiber. Nos vamos. También decimos adiós a Warren Lawrence, que está en los controles técnicos. Volvemos la semana que viene. Adiós. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.